Hello and welcome to The Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, and a remarkably compact solid-state drive containing everything from sourdough bread to a Martian drone called Destiny. Jennifer Walsh encounters the latter a little bit later, and we'll hear also from Dara Kelly about what happens when he introduces a who's who of contemporary Irish composers to an AI system. But we begin this time by hitting peak 2021 with a live-stream collaborative dance project involving a community gardener and some sourdough pioneers created via video chat. As if trying not to own the earth is a project of Clock Jordan-based Portuguese choreographer Rita Macalo, which is part of this year's Dublin Dance Festival. So, in the spirit of the times, Culture File gathered the team on Zoom. And Joe and Julie and Carmel, this is the first time you you, you see yeah. each other. Yeah, hello. <laughs> hello, this is Rita speaking. I'm the Artistic Director of Instant Dissidents. Hi, I'm Julie Lockett. And I'm Joel Fatamaris. And we're from Riot Rye Bakehouse and Bread School. I'm Carmel and I'm the grower on this project. It's a project that examines our connection with nature and our role as human beings within our food system. And it's also about asking questions around reconnecting ourselves with our bodies and with the earth and questions around sustainability. The idea is that the project is actually a year long, so it's organized by calendar seasons. One of the premises of the project is the idea that we are operating outside our realms of expertise. And by this, I mean that every week I give Riot Rye some directions for them to create a dance and I give Carmel directions for her to create a dance. And in return, Carmel teaches me how to grow food and Riot Rye are teaching me how to bake bread. And so we're sort of skill swapping in a way. I'm originally from Portugal, but for 20 years I was based in the UK, in the north of England. Around, again, 2018, I decided to move to Ireland, partly because Brexit happened and I'm a Portuguese citizen living in the UK, but also because myself and my partner were looking for a more sustainable lifestyle. And we found Clock Jordan Eco Village, so we decided to move here. And the way I moved to Ireland, my partner just got on a, on a van, obviously, but I obviously, as a dancer, wouldn't just do that. So I danced my way into Ireland from the south of England. It took me two months and I danced my way. And as I was dancing from England to Ireland, I said goodbye to every single venue I've ever worked. I did little performances with old friends. And so I used this moving away from England into Ireland as a choreographic work. The last stretch of the move was when I danced on foot from Dublin to Clock Jordan. You make, you make it sound very, very final. You, you, you are allowed to go back, aren't you? I, I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> but it, I feel very um, happy and settled here now. So this feels like home. I've always had a practice as a choreographer and performer, but also as an educator. And for a while I was connected to universities, but then when I came out of the university, I still kept this interest in sharing choreographic processes. This is something I've always done. I've always blogged about the process because I think it's interesting that other people get to read about processes and reinvent them or use some of my techniques because I do the same with other people's processes but this is the first time I'm doing it on YouTube. So it's really interesting. I'm actually a dance artist myself. So for me, the language Rita uses, I'm very comfortable with. 
because Joe and I together for a long time, he would have heard me use a lot of the language. So it doesn't feel too foreign for us. She basically talks in terms of um, archaeology. She uses a lot of archaeological terms, which I find interesting um, in terms of excavating. And Rita talks about how at this point in time, in terms of who Joe and I are and who she is, this this is the only dance that could emerge because this is where we all currently are in our lives and our thoughts and our emotions and our uh, work practices. So the dance that is there will emerge and it's really uh, kind of about like a sculptor starts with a piece of stone and you just chip away and reveal what the dance is going to be. I think dance is an incredible form in that you can, you can intellectualise something for a long time and you can talk about it and you can read about it. But if you actually move it, you can you can translate it very quickly to somebody. You can show something. You, somebody can get that aha moment very quickly, I think, in, in watching somebody's movement. It would take them a long time to listen to. I love physical theatre for that, for that very reason, because a story can be told very quickly and you can move somebody. How closely are the choreographic instructions related to what you're doing in your other life, in in in, in bread making, in baking? Those will be in both ways because we just started off looking at movements and then seeing if we were going to abstract things that we were doing and then different elements around us, be it the the wood we work with, be it the land that we live in within the eco village. And then the fire, the space, mapping out the space and working with all these different areas and then seeing what evolves from that. So they're not like direct translations or it's not, there's a not a direct narrative going on within it, but seeing what kind of exposes itself by relation to the different aspects of our work within the bakery. Carmel, I think that maybe working in a field with crops has a closer kind of uh, lean to to choreographic practice than baking. It's funny because I was talking about this with a friend last night and she does a lot of movement practice and gardening as well. And she was saying there's something about your daily life practice that how you even wheel your, your barrow or how you use your hoe, that that is a movement in itself. So there's something that if you do that with a certain awareness and consciousness it becomes a choreography in itself yeah i guess i mean the baking is more of a hand jive kind of uh, dance, <laughs> <laughs> so so rita what what were you taking from everybody's pastimes and occupations that you could work with in the dance it goes two ways so so what i'm taking from them is the direct learning that i'm learning from them so so on that very direct way, I started from scratch. There was a plot of land. I lifted the plastic and with Carmel's instructions, I have marked out some beds and eventually put some mulch down, planted some potatoes and now I've planted some onions. So I'm actually learning that and doing it. And with Joe and Julie, I milled my own flour from scratch, made my own um, starter from scratch and baked sourdough, rice crackers and now bread. So, so there's that very concrete daily thing, but also the grinding of the flour after a while becomes a dance and not just the dance becomes a practice because it has to be done regularly. Joe also has a, a particular way to make a bread that he calls the common loaf that involves folding. So this folding then becomes a dance and it's a folding that you do every half an hour. So you fold it 
you leave it, you come back, you fold it. So there's been a lot of choreography around the land for me and around my kitchen. Initially, I thought there were going to be two parallel, and they are two parallel processes, but actually they're cross-fertilizing one another because the, the starter that is wastage uh, that comes out of the process with right rye, I'm using to fertilize the land, and then in the land I'm growing rye grain. So that's one of the interesting things about the cross-fertilization between both projects alongside the cross-fertilization that goes between dance and growing and dance and baking. This has been a time in the sun for a sourdough that uh, the world <laughs> has never known before. And um, What are you going to do when we're all allowed to go outside again and uh, nobody any longer bakes any bread? We're going to go canoeing on Loch Derg. <laughs> <laughs> Previous to this, about six or eight years ago, we kind of could see the vulnerability within especially the Irish food system and the global food system, especially when it came to bread baking. And within Ireland, we have this tradition of making soda breads and things like that. But they're all really reliant on imported synthetic chemicals, bicarbonate soda, or else within imported yeast, because we no longer make yeast. So then around... Six years ago, we launched the Common Loaf. The, the back and behind this was the idea to put back into common knowledge how to bake sourdough breads. And so came up with a really simple system of how to ferment rye to make your own rye starter. And just to be clear, this was before there was any pandemic or lockdown? or Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, because this is all can be foreseen. We know that there's going to be collapse and calamity within human existence and I was acutely aware especially within Ireland how we were so reliant on imported flour imported ingredients but the knowledge was absolutely missing within us as a country of how to bake the bread it's one thing not being able to have the ingredients but the knowledge wasn't there either so people didn't so we started back then teaching people within the bakery we started running courses to skill people up and I'd be doing talks around the country everywhere I'd go I'd have pots of sourdough start and be giving them out to everybody and instructions just to skill people up and to get a movement going. We would have helped out with Real Bread Ireland setting up that, which is a network of small independent bakers, millers and growers now across Ireland to get bakeries back into, into small towns and to just get the knowledge of how to bake away from the large, big industrial baking system, which held the knowledge and took it away from people themselves and to get it back. Is there enough strong flour in Ireland though? It seems like there's, there isn't a, enough proper bread flour in Ireland. It doesn't, strong flour doesn't grow here in Ireland because of the climate that we have. So traditionally we would have a different type of bread but we bring in organic strong white flour and we then distribute it across the country. Is there a, some way around that? Yeah, so we will be working with Irish growers as well. And one of the reasons why using rye, because rye grows very well within organic crop rotation systems uh, as a green manure, it was often used. So the idea then of taking portions of that and you can use that simply. Start off with just a 20% rye and then slowly bring that transition. People can be then using soft Irish wheat, blending them with strong flour, which again would have to be imported. And But then we can, by using looking at old heritage grains and then working with Scandinavian wheats, which are growing well here, we would look through old heritage wheats, which would have proteins of around 10.5%, which will make very good bread, which will be similar to kind of French flour. With the introduction of synthetic chemicals, use of nitrogen and phosphorus, all these wheats came out of fashion because the straws on them became soft, so they fell over. So now we have little stumpy wheats. And using soda breads, because you're using a chemical leavening, 
there's no need to produce high protein flours. So people didn't look at the wheats for their protein content. Instead, it was grown on for yield. And so they're no longer in fashion to grow these higher protein flours. But now there's a movement to get back into that. And there's the growers now producing beautiful flavoured grains that grow really well in Ireland and produce beautiful breads. And now that's all vital information. But Rita, how are you going to make a dance from that information? (laughs) 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 The team behind as if trying not to own the earth there. And the live stream events from the project will happen at the end of May. Search for as if trying not to own the earth on YouTube and on the Dublin Dance Festival site. Saturday night and I am all alone No ring on the doorbell, no ring on the phone And nobody wants to know anyone lonely like me
It often resembles music is a fairly modest claim for a composer to make about their latest work, but composer and performer Dara Kelly is also willing to share the credit for his crash ensemble commission, deep model worker, with his unpaid collaborator, an artificial intelligence fed on a who's who of contemporary Irish composition. Kelly is one of a growing number of composers fascinated with the possibilities of artificial intelligence in music, although, as he explained to Culture Files, Anya Gallagher, it might be good to start by rethinking what we mean by intelligence and artificial and music. I had to get up in the morning at 10 o'clock at night, half an hour before I went to bed for a long, hard day at the NFT mine. It beat my last job. I'd have to clock in, sit down, look at photos of livestock all day. I'd have to take down the sexiest ones. The thing to remember with artificial intelligence is that it is neither artificial nor intelligent. It is embodied and material and made from material resources and human labor and ultimately, for the foreseeable future, tied to capital and capitalism. And it will work in those interests. But also the the musical and creative possibilities that programs and neural synthesis and different types of AI are opening up are absolutely, I think, revolutionary and incredibly exciting and should be explored, if only because this is what is happening around us. And I think it's the role of artists and musicians and everyone really to think these things through and engage with them substantially. My name is Derek Kelly. I'm a composer and musician living in London, originally from Drimna in Dublin. So the piece was commissioned by Crash Ensemble with the help of Andrew Hamilton. And it's for wind, trombone, strings and live electronics. In this instance, it's actually going to be me on vocals and live electronics, triggering samples via a MIDI keyboard. And these samples are of an AI program that has learned from an album of Crash Ensembles called Crashlands. So essentially, the piece started with me uh, putting Crashlands, the album, into an AI program that then learns from the audio of that album and produces new audio based on it, but that is entirely new. This particular type of machine learning program Uh, was originally used for text, so it's called neural synthesis. It has no concept or no parameters directly related to music. So essentially I got back about 500 minutes of sometimes very strange audio, sometimes very glitchy, but often it resembled the original source material very closely. So it's it's quite lo-fi, it's a bit crunchy, it's it's strange, it's, it's glitchy, but it often resembles music, if you want to call it that. It has all the elements of music, pitch, rhythm, timbre, but in a quite strange way. So there's bits of Gerald Barry in there, there's bits of Linda Buckley, there's bits of Donica Dennehy. So all I can hope for is a class action suit by all of these composers against me in the future. 
my work tends to be quite uh, funny, firstly. Uh, quite strange, using lots of disparate elements of video and found audio and vocal samples, uh, tonal material, atonal material at times. So no, I don't think it conforms to what some people might think of as difficult contemporary classical music at all. <laughs> so for instance, uh, one of my last pieces before lockdown to be performed was a quartet, but it was for poppers. That piece was called Quadrbait. Poppers are a recreational drug commonly used by gay men during sex and sometimes not. What is usually a relatively solitary, hidden activity. And the drug's name is alkyl nitrate or amyl nitrate. So I took the sound of sniffing poppers, so the sniff sound, and notated that and variants of that for a quartet of, yeah, people. All the live sound, the acoustic sound, was mic'd up, sniffing and exhaling and moaning. The acoustic element of this current piece, Deep Model Worker, consists of lots of different strange things. There's a rubber goose, there's a flexitone, which is a very silly kind of metal percussion instrument. And lots of distorted electric guitar. So in this particular piece, you're not only the composer, but you're also um, actually a live performer in the event. Is that an unusual circumstance for you? No, I, I do tend to be in my pieces, if only through necessity. But it was my choice to insert myself into this piece. I think people's art should generally be a kind of compendium of their weird obsessions and their own unique take on what's going on right now. In this piece, I've recently become very interested in AI and its politics, I guess. So everything in this piece is kind of refracted through the lens of labour and the augmentation of it by artificial intelligence. I think a lot of people's initial reaction is quite romantic that AI is coming to take over and replace human creativity whereas the real line on it I think is it's an augmentation and the only music that has to worry about being replaced anytime soon is incredibly generic music but I think we do need to be wary of this augmentation and view it critically Within AI and tech, there is a lack of critical thinking, I think, when it comes to this. And a lot of people working in AI music aren't troubled or concerned for the very real effects this is having on people and work. More so than creativity, I think. Dara Kelly there, talking to Anya Gallagher and Kelly's Deep Model Worker, premiered at New Music Dublin 2021 and is available for all the world to view. Check out at Culture File Pod. And next, Jennifer Walsh is back with her latest chapter of Things Know Things, her meditations on humans and the things that are not humans. And this time, the composer is watching data for fun on a planet far from Earth. 
Last July, the Perseverance rover departed Earth for Mars. I watched the launch live because who doesn't love a good launch? The excitement of the engineers, the nerves, the carefully calibrated countdowns. And that night, when Perseverance was out of sight but safely on its way to Mars, I made an entry in my calendar for mid-February. The date wasn't set yet, but Perseverance was expected to land sometime around then. All through last autumn's second wave, the rise of the different variants and the seemingly endless lockdowns that the new year brought, I thought about Perseverance moving through space at incredible speed towards Mars. And on February 18th, I tuned in for the landing. The last part of the journey the entry and sharp descent directly before the rover lands is considered the most dangerous part of the flight. NASA calls it the seven minutes of terror. This is where things can go horribly wrong and indeed have gone horribly wrong for previous missions. The chief problem during the descent is the time delay. It takes communications from Mars roughly 11 minutes to reach Earth so there is no possibility of correction if something goes wrong. Perseverance, like all previous rovers, had to land autonomously, and it had to identify a suitable landing site as it plummeted towards Mars at incredible speed. Everyone who listened to the live commentary of those seven minutes knew that it was not in fact live. The rover had either already landed or been destroyed. And what joy, what joy to hear that Perseverance had made it down safely, even after the fact. I cheered and even shed a few tears, watching alongside millions of other people across the planet. Last week, I tuned in once more to witness the first flight by Ingenuity, the tiny helicopter which stowed away on Perseverance. This would be the first ever flight by a human-built machine on another planet. I watched the engineers wait for the data from Ingenuity to download. There was no live video, no live sound, only what could be inferred from the data. And suddenly I found myself cheering, along with the engineers and other people watching the stream, because there was a graph on the screen of the altimeter readings. And that meant that ingenuity had succeeded. A few minutes later, there was an image, and then a few seconds of glitchy video, files so new that they were untitled. But that feeling of cheering at a graph has stayed with me since then. As humans attempt to move farther out across the universe, those of us here on Earth will lag further and further behind in time. We'll cheer at download confirmations and graphs. We'll cheer at packets of raw data. And the machines we programmed will be ahead of us, farther away than we've ever been, experiencing it all live.
Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things, and you can find all the previous episodes in that series, including the one about the AI built into the Rolls-Royce and the one about the virtual parrot that teaches humans about grief on the Culture Files SoundCloud page, and indeed by following us on Twitter, at Culture File Pod. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more cosmic probing next week. Till then... Bye now.